Hello and welcome to A Living Loss. I'm Julia Samuel. I can't believe it, but this is the last episode of the series. It has flown by. I feel so lucky to have had such wonderfully open conversations with my guests. And it has meant an enormous amount to me to see that our conversations have helped you too. For me, the value of these conversations for you to listen to is that I felt all of my guests in their different ways have been their most kind of authentic selves, really shown themselves below the kind of mask of, you know, presenting a perfect version of themselves to the world. They've been incredibly honest and open. And I think when we do that, we see ourselves reflected in them and it feels connected. And I felt that I've learned a lot from all of them and I hope all of you have learned from them that life is messy and difficult and unexpected and also how we respond to that, the choices we make from that, how we support ourselves in it, will have an enormous impact on our outcomes. And I think the unifying connector of all of my guests is their courage to be their most heartfelt selves and own it and name it and to get up every day and and be themselves doing their work and loving and living their lives and that feels immensely powerful and and inspirational we're ending this series on a real high dr rahul jandil is my guest for this final episode he's a brain surgeon a scientist and author of life lessons from a brain surgeon and life on a knife's edge Our conversation was wonderfully complex at many levels, felt quite intense at times, in the most kind of life-affirming, heart-touching way. We talked about leaving Kashmir forever, landing in LA when he was a young boy, and the rent that tore in his heart. And we talked about many important relationships in his life that have been difficult, but also how much he's inspired by his patients and how they've given him the inspiration and the agency to be the extraordinary surgeon that he is. So for the final episode of series one, it's my pleasure to share my conversation with Dr. Rahul Jandil on a living loss. Deep breath. Yes. Take a breath. I'm a bit nervous talking with you. Are you? Why? Yeah. When I was uh, thinking about this book, um, you know, there's a chapter on loss and I, my ritual is never to prepare because I feel like interactions are steered, even if it's sub- subconsciously, but I did read your first book and I, I learned from it in that when you when you speak about the most complex topics, sometimes storytelling is is lesson itself. You know, you, you can't give one, two, three how to deal with complexity. Um, 
so um, so I I know a little bit about you more than I usually do, and I just thank you so much. Oh, for including me in your journey and your, and your conversation. Well, I'm unbelievably honored that you're talking to me. I've loved your book, um, A Life on a Knife's Edge, which, I mean, oh, I better introduce you first, by the way. <laughs> this week on All Living Loss, I'm joined by brain surgeon and neuroscientist and Sunday Times bestselling author, Dr. Rahul Jandil. As one of the world's leading brain surgeons, Dr. Jandil is the last hope for many patients who have extreme forms of cancer. And as a scientist, his laboratory investigates the biology of the spread of cancer to the brain. That is unbelievable you do that. I mean, I can just imagine you saying, when you meet someone for the first time and they say to you, what do you do? You say, I'm a brain surgeon, and already they're kind of, their mouth is open, but anyway. When he isn't performing surgery, he is leading a team of scientists in Jandil Laboratory, named after him and known for its cutting edge approach, and known for its cutting edge approach to brain surgery and neuroscience. In addition to being a world-class surgeon and scientist, Dr. Jandil is the author of 10 academic books and over 100 papers on surgery, neuroscience and cancer biology, as well as the Sunday Times bestseller, Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, and the forthcoming Life on, a Knife, Life on a Knife's Edge, which is being published in June. Thank you. What happens when you can hear your bio read to you? <laughs> I, I keep thinking about all the missing pieces. I'm a flawed man with three teenage sons, um, a loving son, a, a dedicated husband trying to be a better husband. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of, interpersonal relationships that are never captured on a, on a resume. And um, although this resume is, um, although I, I, pref I think this resume is closer to who I am than in academic you know, circles when you're read off, like how many papers you've written and all the academic stuff, I always feel like that misses, misses it more. This is closer. And, and having you read it and, and um, all the gravitas that you bring to um, to my journey now, uh, I really appreciate that you did that, and I appreciate that you were able to read that with, uh, with you know, certain earnestness because the books you've written have uh, been transformative for my life, not just for my understanding, but how I could re-deliver uh, them to others in a chapter in my book that's titled "Loss." L O S S. Yes, I, I read it, and I, I mean, what I was aware of in reading your book, I, I, you know, how vastly different we, we are. I mean, I could no more be a brain surgeon or a neuroscientist than fly to the moon. I barely got a biology GCSE. <laughs> but that actually our approach and understanding of people who are suffering, whether it, in your case it's um, the grief of a, of a life-threatening and probably very likely life-limiting um, diagnosis and me working with people with the same psychologically it felt to me like our our views and our approaches through our experience really is similar and what I, I took I took a lot from what you said about I felt like it was your humanity that in the end leads you more than your brilliance and you know you obviously have amazing capacity to 
zone and get into that flow state so that you can do the surgery in the way that you do. But in some ways, what it feels like steadies you is your is your scientific understanding, but much more is your heart and your compassion. Thank you for that. You know, I um, <clears throat> I, I never thought I was going to become a, a physician or a surgeon. Um, my journey has been unconventional. I, I dropped out of university. I never, none of my friends went to university from, from high school. And so I brought a different perspective to it. And I just feel like so many of my colleagues, um, they were striving for it. And I fumbled backwards into it. And um, it gave me a different perspective that I, I saw I, I saw the patient's journeys as a masterclass in, in humanity. Um, I, I enjoy a, the technical, I, I enjoy the craft of surgery. And whenever I talk to, you know, we have a, a farmhouse in Oregon now, and I talk to them about farming, or I talk to somebody about stitching, or I talk to my plumber who comes in and there's so much, strangely, there's so much overlap with Parallel. what goes on inside. So I, I love that technical aspect, but the pay, what I love about brain surgery is that um, there is no greater access to not just not just humanity, but sort of the the ways in which we are anchored in biology and anatomy, but not imprisoned by it. So the greatest insight I can share with people is there are some guidelines in how we work. There we have some patterns and habits but we're not, we're not restricted by them because psychology, mind, consciousness is bigger than that. And along the way, as I learned the craft, I started to notice uh, things about myself and the patients. And it's taken, I'm 48 now, almost 49. It's taken that much time to offer this synthesis in this book and in this conversation about people. But what I understand from what you're saying is the complexity I mean, of like, humanity the, in front of me. The complexity of, but also, you know, you you talk about in your book that you were underestimated. And at some level, it, I think you said this, or I took this, that you were a, rebe a rebel. You weren't going to follow the sort of direct paths that your peers mm -hmm. were doing. or that, And you were kind of, you were quite angry, quite fierce but you didn't know where to put it. Right. And, but it feels like through that, that that force was an energy that you overcame those difficulties. And so I wondered, it, I mean, it feels quite paradoxical that from, or maybe it's, in fact, I think it's what you say is from having some level of discomfort or distress mm. ourselves, we learn and we grow and it's through adversity, you know, we're wired evolutionarily to survive and even thrive through adversity. And it feels like you're a living example of that. Well, let me thank you. First of all, so most people other than, you know, my wife, my mother and my sons and a few close friends, they don't really capture all of that uh, complexity as you did. Um, but I'm an intense person. My mother says, you know, when you were a little kid, my gosh, hard to handle. 
And then, so the concept is sublimation. It's a chemistry term, but it's also a psychological term. How do you term, how do you take intensity that can be pathological or constructive? How do you steer it? How do you steer that, that force inside you, that energy, that spirit, that soul? And um, my patients helped me with that. My patients said, your uh, unconventional journey, your your own personal struggles actually create, if you channel in this direction rather than destructive, if you channel it towards us, it allows us to connect with you more. And I think I mentioned in the book that I think to be a cancer surgeon, you have to bring a bit of your own suffering to the fore because corporate medicine is saying, ask these six questions so the patient feels their things are addressed. But to me, every patient is an individual, different languages, different parts of their cancer journey. And, and my own complexity, you know, oh yeah, the nuance of the connection to where they know he's bringing something authentic. And when you do complex surgery, no one can understand. The doctors don't understand, but there's a sense of connection and trust that he is with me through the difficult times. So in cancer surgery, <laughs> where almost, if not all, all my patients have, have passed away, I found a home where I could take my own complexity and, and deliver it for purpose and have people return that to me. And I also felt a little strange about the fact that, you know, they pass away and I don't. I mean, there's been a long journey of thousands of patients. I've met 10, 15,000. I've operated on what? three, 4,000. I mean, it's a lot of human interaction. And this book and this conversation is the synthesis of that, um, of the things I've learned and the, and the things I've learned about myself as well as the patients. So I, I thank them. This book is an homage to letting them, letting them, uh, you know, see their lives at their most intense and intimate. And that's what I'm trying to bring to uh, people who may read it is stories, which I learned from your approach, plus some science, plus some behaviors, plus some psychology, a sort of a compilation of all the things I've seen. I mean, that is fascinating. And I guess what I take from that is that Every person that you've met has left a piece of themselves in you, three to 5,000 patients, 15,000 yeah. people that you've come across. And they kind of live on in you through the work that you're doing mm. and in the words of your book. And certainly what I hear, but also see it in, within, a, I worked in a hospital for 25 years, is that nobody will really trust you until they feel that you care about them and that if yeah. you believe someone really cares um yeah. then you can kind of lie down and let them open up your brain with a very sharp knife but often with surgeons they're you know you're thought of as sort of mm, machines technicians, technicians. and mm. so you're are you at the nether end or have we misunderstood surgeons? Mm. No, I'm at the <laughs> nether end. You know, the surgeons are, the surgeons are going to say, what are you talking about? I mean, it pulls to a different uh, 
aptitude and inclination, but, um, you know, what you said just in that sentence is, is sort of the story of my life. I've always been an outsider and I'm still an outsider in surgery. This conversation with you is not a conversation that surgeons have, but what I would offer people is when you agree, you meet me for 15 minutes and you say, open my skull and spend a few hours. And possibly kill me. Yeah. Human there's an opportunity to understand humanity in that moment. And whether it's been done often or not, it was my opportunity. And I've been waiting. I've been spending, I'm a cancer surgeon as a professor for 12 years and the training is 25. And I've been waiting for this opportunity. And, and frankly, London, UK has given me this opportunity more than the US. The original book that I wrote did not work well in the United States, but Penguin and uh, somebody named Venetia Butterfield saw that there was- My editor. Oh yeah? Well, she saw that there was some potential. Oh, fantastic. And she said, yeah, you will resonate here and I will give you a chance. And then uh, the second book, rather than going uh, deeper into just the functions of the brain and how to improve the brain, she's allowed me to talk about behavior mind and that has come all the way around to where you and i are having this conversation so i just i'm learning to surrender to uncertainty where i'm uncertain about my life i'm uncertain about my patients where they will go and i'm uncertain about where the trajectory of my creative processes will go and 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 in that i enjoy these interactions you and i are having and there's that very thin line, isn't mm -hmm. there, that you talk about as the line between possibility and certain and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I talk about where uncertainty ends, hope begins. Mm -hmm. But also the paradox is that we want certainty, but when we do, we limit ourselves. Mm -hmm. But when we dare and kind of leap into the uncertainty with a level of not knowing, then we're more likely to... to is it thrive or mm -hmm. expand? We're more likely to grow. Expand. I love that word, expand. So if I may, with your permission, <laughs> yes. uh, the, there's, a bio, there's a structural, you know, we can take that concept yeah. and, and zoom in. Rather than looking at the heavens, we can t turn, the, turn the telescope into a microscope that the... Um, loosely called emotional brain prefers certainty because it takes, it takes energy to have vigilance always to look out at which yeah. cave or which hyper vigilant yeah yeah and so certainty is preferred <laughs> food source relationship interaction tomorrow but there's also a habit and a complacency and so if you're looking for expansion as you mentioned or uh, growth or breaking of a habit, it takes a certain disruption, whether you add it to your life or it's delivered to you through a death or a loss or a, a relationship that's um, dear to you, but may not be possible forever. And, you know, sort of a, a grieving for the life you imagined for yourself, you know, there are a lot of layers in which that, that vigilance, rises 
and it's inefficient. So your brain prefers, hey, fine, settle down to a way where you know what the next few steps are. And uh, when I was uh, younger, I'm, I'm, I, um, I preferred certainty and I still do. It's sort of like, it always pulls me in that way. But my cancer patients, you know, every three months they come to see me with a scan and it could be your, there's nothing there or your tumors have grown. Can you imagine every three months of your existence facing uncertainty about your fate, about your finish line? And so when I, and at first I, you know, it was mechanical and then I learned to be more emotional and it's not three months. I say holidays. Oh, well, let's get to Christmas. We'll get a scan. Do you want to get a scan before Christmas or after? Do you prefer knowing things are fine or worse before a holiday or do you just don't rock out on a holiday and then find out afterward, deal with it. So like I learned to bring their emotional elements of, and then, um, and then I realized that I was learning from them that, It was a sort of, first I thought it was a vicarious traumatization every time they didn't do well. I was like 1% injured. But then I was realizing it was a vicarious fortification. If they could come every three months to their scans and ask me, how are you doing? How are are things? And I look around, I'm like, you're the one about to get this most scary information about a cancer scan. And you're asking me about my day. I, uh, I realized they had found something that was deeper that I didn't have. And so they have, uh, you know, again, I've, I've, I've trying to understand what they have in this book. I'm trying to offer you what I think is the meaning and purpose and what they're going through. And that we really learn from each other. Yeah. Their, their courage in the face of their possible death. Exactly. Gives you courage just to have your day. But listen, because you don't prepare, you don't know that this podcast has a format and I have completely (laughs) derelicted, whatever the word is, my duty in asking you these two big questions. So so the title of the of the podcast is A Living Loss, Mm. The Art of Losing and Find Yourself. And why I've done that is that there are so many losses in our life that you very much talk about in the in the book, like grief starts at the point of diagnosis that I think don't get um, uh, acknowledged. And but the grieving process is absolutely the same as it is as a grief from death. And so the format is the first question I want to ask you, given this is a living loss, so it could be losing a teddy bear, it could be Mm. a friend leaving you at school, it could be your dad traveling away, moving house, whatever it is. What is the first living loss that you can remember? Um, You know, when uh, I can't remember how old I was, but I remember when I landed in in Los Angeles, um, the moments before, it was, uh, it was this this sort of, it wasn't even, I didn't understand, but I understood the emotional context where I was standing in front of a house in Kashmir at the foothills of the Himalayas. And my father and my mother were trying to pull me off of somebody and it was my grandfather. And there were luggages there. 
And um, I, I don't know, it was just, I, I, I can't remember. It was, it was their loss that they were feeling that I sort of participated in. I mean, I didn't have an idea what was going on. I could have been going down the street or, you know, but, but I remember holding on to his, uh, like the pocket of his narrow jacket. And he was a very sophisticated ambassador in Northern India and in Kashmir. And, and I remember there was this feeling we shouldn't go. And I was holding on to the pocket and my mom, oh. It was God. pulling me and there was just sort of this, yeah, there was just sort of this moment there. And then, and then boom, we're on a Pan, you know, Pan Am. People don't know Pan Am, but Pan American, that was an airplane. Okay. And then boom, 24 hours later, I was in Los Angeles. I was, that was in 1980. But I, I, I felt the, again, vicarious, or I felt the understanding of separation at that moment that they were going through and that I participated in. But there was, there's a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a physical person. I don't know how to explain that to people. Like, I'm the, la even though we're on a Zoom, I hate Zoom. I'm not, I'm not, I'm gonna not plug into the matrix. I'm gonna be in nature on the water if I can. Uh, but I remember the texture of the wool, you know, the sort of the, uh, the, the cashmere of the, you know, of the, of his pocket, and. Um, I never met him again. Oh, no. no. Which religion is it where you tear your clothes when you're mourning? Mm, I'm not sure. But in Kashmir, we had multiple religions. We had Islam and Hinduism and, and Sikhism. And it was an interesting dynamic. There was conflict. I mean, I, I felt happy. I was stable. I, I, you know, but there was definitely a moment of this a departure before cell phones, you know, once in a month telephone. It was a, I think I was seven or eight. And, uh, and then that was that. And it made me feel like I should always be prepared to be at home nowhere and at exile everywhere. Like that there will always be transitions in life, geographical and continental, if you will. But that was the, if you ask me, that was the first time I remember loss. At home, nowhere, and an exile everywhere. Mm. And as you were talking, I could see the tears in your eyes and I felt that kind of sadness, like this tear, like holding on, like gripping as a young boy, holding on and smelling your grandfather. It feels like it's embodied, that memory, feeling the cloth, feeling the pull, and you didn't have a story to explain it, didn't know what was happening, but you have mm. a very physiological, emotional memory of the tearing. And from that moment, something fundamental turned your life on its axis, where, where you were well, it's, never it, fully at home. It's sensual in the uh, physiologic way. Um, um, you know, of our five senses, there's only one that you know, we cannot resist olfaction. So, uh, you know, with COVID and people not being able to smell, I've always seen that as like, wow, that's amazing because like you can never stop being disgusted by the smell of vomit. You can't think down. You, you can think down Defend. the fear of a snake. You can think down a certain touch you may not prefer. So there's a, there's a connection of the five senses. Only smell goes straight straight to your emotional brain if we you know make it simplistic 
without the regulation of the thinking brain. But the I just always wonder, maybe that was the moment in which my hands were given a birth. You know, there was a texture to the, uh, you know, the the cashmere wool, the most fine wool that in the pocket. And I've always been a very sensual person, especially with my hands, even in moments of, uh, if I may respectfully say, even in moments of intimacy, my most intimate features are my fingertips, my hands. And I, I, I started to think about, you know, where those things start for us, um, where those things go wrong for us. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, and before that, I don't have any memories of cashmere. It's a, it's a weird thing. I mean, you're like, my mother and my father used to say, what do you mean? You don't remember all of that? I was like, no, I just remember the, uh, the cashmere coat on grandpa and then Pan Am uh, with the little soaps they had before. They didn't have the pump, you know, in 1980. They didn't have the pump. Yeah. You got your own little individual soap. And I love the little packaging and the design feature of it. And I still love design and decor and landscape stuff. And I just, I, I, I don't know how I became to who to be who I am, but at this age, I've I've enjoyed the exploration of my uh, the deeper corners of my mind, and that is definitely a deep corner, if you will. And thank you for asking me about it. Feels incredibly powerful, and that it has really been significant in shaping many ways consciously and unconsciously mm. the choices the refusals and the directions that you've taken the cashmere coat might have made me a surgeon <laughs> and i i imagine you could smell if you you can still remember the smell of your grandfather and the smell of cashmere well the i don't actually um but i the the visual and the the physical, I, I do remember there were two mango trees and in one of them there was a monkey. It's a strange uh, intersection of, you know, and he was the ambassador. It's like a photograph. It's like a, like a. <laughs> right. You have like a, a posh cashmere coat. You have a, my grandfather's an ambassador. It's a beautiful stately mansion. Elegant. And yeah. then in, in two giant mango trees, but there is a monkey in the I mean, it's a, it's a surreal world that it's hard to explain to my three sons, but it was very uh, sensual of all the sensual of all the senses. And um, it's the beginning of a movie. And landing in Los Angeles was as well. So, do you associate where you when you said you were um, kind of not part of the tribe of surgeons, and then an exile mm -hmm. everywhere? Is that because your roots are Northern Indian? Is it, is there always a feeling beneath your integrating and assimilating as an American in an American life with American kids that at some level there's always the loss of that? Mm. The loss of identity, yes, but not the loss of self. And I think that's an important distinction, like, you know, I, I'm in Los Angeles. I literally, you know, you know, those things are identity. I'm a, you know, I, I'm a surgeon. I'm in Los Angeles. I mean, those are identity, but the sense of self was that I must become comfortable with not having an anchor. 
And they meet so many people that are rooted in their home, they're rooted in their race, they're rooted in their culture, they're rooted in their religion. But I've been around so many religions. I've been around so many countries. On the other side, sublimation, putting that um, lack of roots to use, I've been doing stuff in Bolivia and Eastern Europe and different things. And so I find like, the fact that I don't have an anchor almost in some strange way lets me connect more with people all the way from Ukrainians to Bolivians to Londoners. And I didn't see it always that way, but you know, in my late forties, I'm trying to, again, find how, what could have been seen or absorbed as disruptions that were um, destructive I'm actually starting to see that as a gift. Not that all loss and grief and disruptions are a gift, but they are a portal to a new journey, a new uh, understanding about yourself and a new opportunity. Uh, it, I'm not happy about a lot of things that have happened in my life, but, um, but I do look back and say, hey, but that led to this good moment. I couldn't be in London in this conversation if I didn't, you know, sort of, um, have this feeling of, you know, almost being a nomad, you know, that I feel comfortable being in places where I've never been. Uh, and in, in my terms, I would, which I probably, I think, replicate yours, I would say that's post-traumatic mm -hmm. growth. So it never diminishes or lessens the level of the loss or the pain of the loss or the meaning of it. Exactly. But because we are evolutionary wired and equipped to deal with adversity, and it feels like you by facing your fear, allowing it to come through you, kind of problem solving while you're at it, it gave you a path of resilience where you have quite a good musculature to manage going into very different places. So in some senses, when we feel insecure and scared, we mm. shrink and we shrink kind of armoured and we don't dare step out of our comfort stone. It may be that we don't dare go beyond our street. It may we not dare to take the job mm. that we want, leave the relationship mm. we'd like, have the fight mm. with our parent that we need to have. But it, it diminishes our capacity to speak for ourselves, represent ourselves, and dare to do the things that actually in some way meet our very fundamental needs. Brilliant. And it sounds like at the, the kind of heart of what has been so difficult is also, as you see it, and I completely agree with you, is at the heart of how you've been able to thrive and grow and expand. That, just, that captures it just perfectly. I didn't wish any, if you asked me again to write my story, I would say, <laughs> don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that but it was, it fell upon me. And then you're left with an aftermath that you're left in your control partially. You have, you have choices. choices. It's an aftermath that you can direct. I didn't, I, I don't want these calamities to happen, but my calamities were real in my inner world experience. experience. Yeah. Yet with, <laughs> thousands of cancer patients, you're also looking at a, a great, if you will, a masterclass of how to deal with calamity. 
and not one that happens like trauma happens and then they deal with it. But my cancer patients, I mean, they're traumatized every three months when they have to see me. Yet they find they come in with their they've made me a sweater. They've made they brought some food. And it's just like they're living. They're not just bracing. They're living. And uh, I didn't get it at first in my 30s, but in my 40s, I'm starting to look at that and say, wow. I mean, what is it that they have found? Not all of them. I don't want to present a picture of like, hey, cancer will make your life. Listen, I, some of them have suffered poorly. And I would like, I'm thinking, eh, that's probably how you would handle it. You know, you'd fall apart. But some of them have been triumphant. But many of them, if I may even say on the collective behalf of the cancer journey, a majority of them have found um, a way to go on that isn't just, you know, braced and sheltered for a new bomb to fall on their life. They're living while they're carrying their grief. They're carrying their grief and calamity with them, almost like an appendage, a purse or a companion that they didn't want, but there's still so much of them that's living. And, and I must say it's inspirational. So people ask me, oh, you're a cancer surgeon. You must be depressing. Are you, are you kidding me? I get to meet heroes constantly that remind me of my, of what I could be, of who I can still become. And, uh, and that's what this, you know, again, this conversation, this book is like, people will say, well, uh, you know, it may be depressing, quite the opposite. You will leave inspired, but also the stories will leave the complexity. You know, I, I worry, especially in Los Angeles, that everything is packaged down to a, B, C. Perfection. You're not doing, have a, you know, have granola, have a, a blueberry, and then do yoga in Malibu. You know, that's not, it doesn't match the complexity of our human experience. And I think that, that people are a bit frustrated, like, well, I did those things and I don't feel better. And I think the stories, the stories like in your book, and in this, um, I hope in this book, this, I mean, half of it is stories. It, very much yeah, the so. stories leave you learning about where how others how others have navigated. Um, like the woman um, who that came who had a head brace who wanted uh, to live the extra three months to get to her son's graduation. But you're not. I they need to read the book to hear that story because I have another mm -hmm. question. I know you. It's an amazing story, and it. I think what I what I understand from you and understood from the book and I think is valuable for all of us to understand is that when we really have our nose pressed up against the reality of our own death it can either kind of completely shut us down or liberate. it can liberate us to really take a bite-sized chunk of the joy of life right. and love more fully live life more intensely but often with pain wow. and awful treatments even but you really value things when you know you haven't got them in limitless supply which is a kind of badly wired that we often take for granted what matters most until it's forced um till we're forced not to i think if we went went around every day thinking about the complexity of life it might actually get in the way of the yeah the, simple yeah. pleasures and, yeah. and and what you need to get done during the day but 
but we also have wisdom and we have the ability again we're we are built on biology but we are not imprisoned by it and whether it's literature or theater or communication or friendship or even that we're finding now with uh, you know psychedelic uh psychotropic things for understanding and for me you know, I, when, I, when I thought about the, the complexity of our biology of our brains, you know, I, when, I, when I tell a story, it's anchored in biology because I'm not a therapist, but I've seen anatomy, of course, and other surgeons have talked about it. But if you really think about a Petri dish and you put a few brain cells in there, they come, they come together, they coalesce, kinship something greater. There's no force. There aren't the usual physicists looking for the, I can't even pronounce the, the names, the mu or the proton or the, the space force. I, I, but in a Petri dish, there's something more magical than the bringing atoms together in, 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 in the universe. How do you take one neuron and it's a desert? It is lonely. It is irrelevant. Abandoned. Abandoned. Very good. But you put a few and they come together and they start sending electricity to each other. I mean, just to see three, it takes my breath away. I, I have not been able to fully share. And now, now you take three, then you go to now you go to 100 billion and you put them all in our skull and you put it in fluid. I mean, there's there's something at the biological level. The lessons at the biological level will make us say that tomorrow is possible. So I know as a therapist and others will say that um, infinite is what our mind can accomplish but when people see like the lego blocks or the components or the bricks of our brains have a certain behavior and pattern both destructive and constructive it's strangely like i can do this it's empowering to see that you put a couple of neurons they connect and they send electrical discharge they coalesce we're meant for complexity and kinship we are meant for something greater at the cellular level that you would take a, a microscope to see. And to me, that also, you know, that's what I've tried to share is that there's, there are things going on in our flesh that reflect that are things going on in our lives and our minds. It's not, it's not separate. Now, the mind isn't no, no, restricted the by the flesh, no. but it, it's not restricted by the flesh. And then the most magical thing to me is that a certain thoughts and patterns and behavior of our mind can go back and actually change the flesh. So let's take stress and grief. So we shape it. So we shape each other. I right. mean, it shapes each other. Our body shapes our Thought. thoughts and our thoughts shape our body. And the two Excellent. are completely, they dance Excellent. together in a beautiful dance. And if Excellent. we let them, but also you're saying, like go with the complexity, right. go with the connection and the energy. Um, if you can. If you can. But listen, I have to ask you my next question. Okay. We maybe can go back to that. So the next question is similar. It's about a living loss. If you were to kind of think and look back in pages of chapters of your life, can you think of a living loss that's the most significant, that sort of changed everything? What's the biggest living loss that you've experienced? The biggest living loss 
so I've had struggles and there've been difficulties and they've settled down. You but, had that horrible neighbor, you had that chairman. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there've been people I've, I've battled with through my life, but I've endured and maybe they've endured. But if you ask me about a loss, it was my unexpected death of my father two years ago. And why that I, I see that as a loss is because the, the circumstances around it reveal that, you know, we are both passengers and drivers of our life and that we must surrender to uncertainty to really capture the complexity of life. He had a, a you know, he had psoriasis, which is a skin condition, it's autoimmune. You know, usually women have that and other things. And he had that and he took a little mild chemotherapy and made his lungs a little uh, thicker than they should be more of a dried out sponge. It created a little nodule. It should have been a, a simple, you know, one hour Regular. Chip removal of a little piece of the lung, you know, and then and he was ready to go home. And and then certain events started. And over the next three weeks, he he passed away, you know. And um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And um, the so that's not a living loss, but that's a loss. No. But, but it changed my changed my whole world, the whole world around me, you know, my mother, my wife, my sons. Um, and you. Yeah. Thank you. And so I'm st and I'm still trying to navigate those pieces together. And I first approached it as, you know, I must be the CEO of this uh, after, you know, and uh, I'm realizing I can't, I, I, um, you know, I just have to let everybody be and be there for everybody. You know, I mean, you know, as a surgeon, you're just so I fix this problem. I fix this problem. I've been fixing problems my whole life, you know, and I just, and this living loss, uh, the loss of my father and, and the ripples through, through my family have, uh, have taught me that I am just one of many. I can guide, I can steer, but all these components have to go through their own journey. And frankly, in some weird microscopic way, that's how each of our 100 billion, billion brain cells are. There is no dominion. They're just patterns and flows, aurora borealis. There's constructive flows and habits. There's constructive grieving that takes time, depending on how hard you've been hit. There's destructive. There's, you know, there's, there's just, there's flows of electricity in our brains. And I'm trying to create a flow of, of kinship and connection in my family, but it's never like A to B, wire to wire. And that's actually liberated me because because I've I've started to see that that's how nature works, how trees grow together, seasons of growth, seasons of collapse, the material of the collapse returned to the elements of the growth. So rather than life as something A to B to Z to D, I just cyclical is not really. It doesn't capture the complexity, but it's allow it to have its natural process. Right. Seasonal. With its seasonal process, with its ebbs yeah. and its flows. Yeah. So that has been the boss. rather than taking thinking that if you pull it all together as CEO, you can take charge and fix everything. Yeah. You have to kind of recognize that you can support yourself 
and love and connect everybody in it, but you can't fix anybody. Grieving isn't something that can be fixed. Thank you. So do you have a living loss that you can think of? Because that's obviously where you went first, because that is... Loss, loss. The, it's a loss from death, and it's the most significant... That when you hear the word loss, you go to your dad, because it's still raw. It's only mm. two years ago. But is there one behind that that is a living loss? The yeah, the living loss, the the one that that's not based on death. I think would be my uh, relationship with my wife. Um, when I had dropped out of college, she believed in me. I was nineteen years old, and uh, we both became cancer doctors and cancer surgeons. And last few years have been difficult and. Um, at this point, we're separated. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I'm heartbroken. Yeah, I bet. Um, but the, um, you know, I would say the, the living loss is the, I'm grieving for the life I imagined with her. Yeah. Because, um, like my father, my mother, she understood me most flawed man with a lot of potential we just, we got to put some we got to put some boundaries and and barriers and, and hold him yeah we got to we cultivate him and and the way to cultivate was me me was that all three of them my mother my dead father and my wife they all believed in me you know belief in somebody's huge oh my gosh that that is the ultimate dopamine hit which is not a real thing but that's the reward system belief hope something is better is possible is like the opposite of sadness and depression and grief Despair. <clears throat> and so we're, we're working through things but it has been a difficult few months um few years but um it, it, I'm, I'm living a loss right now with imagining a life that may not have her in it and uh it's very disruptive to me it's left me at my most raw again and i always thought it was patience or worrying for children worrying for family or parents and all that but i think i failed to understand that um you know the love of a partner is not just you know not just keeps up with those other elements, but in some strange way, having a partner, maybe maybe the most essential connection in life, and having to take a hard look at that that may not be in my future is, uh, you know, I'm grieving. Yeah. I'm grieving that living loss, and um, you know, I hope to know her forever. Yeah, and be with her. I mean, I can hear and see in your face that's devastating it kind of runs through your whole body the the importance and the sort of fundamental trust in that your relationship that you are in this together for the future into old age as parents as grandparents mm. as mm. partners as friends as yeah. kind of in it exactly. and this is a massive rupture that you right. if i can see really feel torn apart by it it is a tear through my psyche and i feel yeah. uh, at home again nowhere oh, and i'm so exile, sorry uh, yeah 
from everywhere, but... Um, Takes you to that eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's okay. Because I welcome yeah. it. Uh, I welcome the complexity. And I, I think about it in the years ahead, uh, how this grief and this separation, potential separation, separation, will um, alter me. Will I spiral into something unhealthy, distress? Or will I find uh, lessons about complexity that uh, help me better understand my patients and other relationships and people? And I think that's, that's what this is. Separation and loss and grief is a portal is a portal to a complexity and a, a depth that you don't want to invite yourself to. <laughs> you don't choose it for yourself. But when it arrives in the short term or long term, depending on the complexity, you know, I'm not equating my situation with a parent who loses a child, but, um, but in your own inner experience, like experience your world, uh, you are raw again. You are rubble again. And then you are left to rebuild the rubble with the wisdom of the past, with the wounds of the present, and the and the and the limited time frame in front of you. You know, I think that I'm facing that too. Is that I'm almost fifty, and and um, I'm tiring, and I feel like um, having a companion or a narrative that I can. I want to cement a narrative, but you know, the way life is that, uh, you know, that's not possible. And um, only till our final moments can you really, can really your life's narrative really, you know, be written. And uh, so I realized I'm still a part of the journey. And it's, 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 it's sad, it's difficult, but it's also exhilarating. It's forcing me out into a space maybe I don't want for myself, but, but I, I will try to put it to good use. And thank you so much for talking with me. Well, I feel very moved. I feel very, I wish I could give you a hug across these thousands of miles <laughs> between here and LA. Because it, I can hear you wrestling. You really yeah. feel the pain of it. And this incredibly significant, huge loss takes you back to all the previous losses, probably mm. the loss of your dad, mm. the loss of uh, um Kashmir and all the ones in between and it sort of takes you back as you say to rubble but you're also using your knowledge that you can recast this you can reframe it you can rebuild you can use this with your emotion and your understanding and your daring to go forward but it bloody hell wasn't what you wanted <laughs> you captured it better than anybody else I will hold on to daring and bloody hell not what I want <laughs> Bloody hell, not what I wanted, and daring for the future. I mean, I am, yeah. I am, I am raring to go. And thank you, London and UK. You have uh, given me a new world and a new space, and and a again, new home, maybe a new home. Thank you, thank you. I feel very touched by our conversation. I feel like in a very short time, you've shown me a lot of yourself, and I feel very honored that you've been so open and so raw and um, privileged to have listened to you. And I, I know that people that will listen to this will learn a lot from our conversation. So I really want to applaud you and appreciate you and thank you. Thank you.
Until we meet again. Across the miles. Give you a hug across the miles. Received. Thank you. That was an incredible conversation. I'm feeling very touched by Rahul and tender towards him. I really could feel so much of what he said was was so powerful um, and appreciate his openness and honesty. But I feel very moved by Rahul, by his brilliance and his acknowledgement of complexity. But the thing that seems most important, the message in him is that when we speak most honestly, as he did with me today, having never met me, I've never seen his face before, we speak, we speak most universally. I don't think anyone listening to this conversation won't recognize that pain of a broken heart from not having the future that you dreamed you're gonna have. And it may not be the end of a relationship, it may be other dreams or other wishes or other futures that people expected. But in that message, he also showed that by allowing himself to feel the pain of it, the rawness of it, the shitness of it, he also trusts that he can imagine a new version of himself living in the future where he will reframe it and learn from it and that will give him outer reaches that he hasn't gotten himself now in his heart and his being which will extend his relationship with himself with his children with his patients and in his world that through it he will expand although he would never in a million years want this to be the reason that's forcing him to my psych intake is that pain is the agent of change. I mean, it's my byline. <laughs> but that when you allow yourself to fully feel and express the pain, you don't resist it. You allow it to change you. And as it changes you, you adapt. And through that, it's, there's possibility for growth. The things that you do to block the pain, like he has this performative self that he has, he's on TV shows, he is a sort of science professor and teaching everybody and, you know, all that. From that, you don't really grow. But by being so raw with me, I think he shifted something within himself, even in that very short session. It felt like going public about something so private, he allowed the pain to change him. And he made that choice very intentionally and I think he'll be it will do something for him that will will be a kind of touchstone to okay this is who I am now and he'll take that with him as he goes through his day and through the weeks ahead and that's it for this week thanks again for my brilliant guest Rahul Jandil my producer Sophie King at Move Sounds and to you of course most importantly for listening Please continue to share the podcast with your family and friends. I really do love to see how the podcast is guiding you and giving you information 
and how you share it amongst yourselves. So please make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, look after yourselves. Bye-bye.